When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is this the start of a fourth quarter comeback? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. We've got a twofer today. Our global markets editor, Weston Nakamura, is with us and Darius Dale, founder of 42 Macro. Hi, fellas. Hey, Maggie. What's up, Ari? Weston, what's up? Good morning. Hello, hello. Yeah, we have to remember it's good morning. It's good morning for Weston. Um, so here we are uh, with our, we have our fourth quarter reference because it is the start of a new month. It is also the start of the last quarter of 2022. I think everyone's pretty happy to shut the book on September as volatile and awful as it was for almost every asset class except the dollar. Um, but it was interesting. We saw a pretty good looking rally today on U.S. equities. Um, Ten year Treasury eased back a little bit. So it was a bit of a reprieve. But I have to say, it does seem like there's an awful lot of concern underneath. So, Darius, I'm going to start with you as a former football player. Uh, I'll put the fourth quarter question to you. What are you expecting for these final three months? Hey, look, you know, the 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 losing team, and I would I would certainly put the Bulls in that category this year. Although, you know, don't be don't be too mad at me, Bulls. You guys had a good run. Um, the losing team certainly, you know, certainly hasn't lost all of its gas. It hasn't lost all of its juice. There are some positive things. Uh, coming down the pike here and you know, at least the early part of Q4 that may make this feel like, you know, we're going to start to claw back some of these, uh, you know, pretty historic losses, you know, in the equity and fixed income markets. Um, it's our view, you know, kind of what's really driving that is, you know, the continued resiliency of the economy. Uh, if you don't have a sharp negative revision to the near term growth outlook, which we don't necessarily see coming in Q4, um, it's unlikely you're going to get, you know, kind of a capitulatory style move on uh, in risk assets, unless, of course, you get something like Credit Suisse, which you can talk to about in a second, that becomes more systemic. Uh, so, you know, I, we, it's our view that we're probably going to see a re, re, you know, repeat of Q2 earnings season in terms of the companies telling investors, hey, look, when we look around, we see things that are contributing to, you know, record operating margins on the S&P or near record, at least. And those th those dynamics should persist for a little while longer. So to sum up my answer to your question, Maggie, uh, yes, we're going to see some likely we're going to see some strength, at least from a positioning unwind perspective, at least in the early part of the fourth quarter. But obviously, we'd be fading that strength because we're nowhere near the lows of the liquidity cycle or the growth cycle. Yeah, I had a feeling there was a butt coming there somewhere. Darius. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting that, you know, on a time perspective that you do see sort of more strength here into the end, because, you know, there are some people and the data has been all over on this, right? But there are some people who worry that, you know, things are falling apart, cratering fast underneath mm -hmm. the surface. There's definitely that camp out there. Weston, what, what about you? What did you make of the market action that we've been seeing? Uh, sure. So yeah, year to date, what a fun first three quarters. Um, so it, I guess I think, you know, for as far as hedge fund strategies uh, are concerned, Outside of global macro, um, you know everyone's getting destroyed, especially long short equity and all that. Uh, if you're long only, obviously you're also getting destroyed on an absolute basis. Relative, you know, fine. You might be outperf outperforming the S and P by two or three percent if you're good, uh, and that means you're only down twenty percent. Um, if you're sitting in cash, 
you're literally not being a money manager. Uh, so going into the fourth quarter, you're either sitting on losses or you're sitting on cash and not doing your job. And so I think that you're going to, as far as the equity markets are concerned, you're going to see just FOMO on steroids probably um, at like the exact wrong time. So if you see like today, you know, start of a new quarter, um, just from the sake of just because equities are going up, people might start. I'm talking about institutional managers, you know, who are managing for career risk and not for market risk, as they always do. But this time more than ever, um, they're going to just rush in. Right. Forget the fundamentals, this or that, or whatever. And then and then vice versa. There's going to be a lot of sort of panicky uh, moves that um, that they're they're behaving out of out of pure panic out of their jobs. So um, that's like something to keep in mind. Like markets are not these sort of mechanical things, although by and large they, they can be due to systematic flows. But at the end of the day, there are also people, active managers who are, you know, kind of benchmarked to a calendar date and a bonus season um, and a mortgage and this and that that they have in mind too. And that plays out in market behavior. I, I, Weston, I love that answer because it really kind of speaks to psychology, right? So we're always trying to look at the facts here. So, uh, it, it, you know, is this going to be trying to chase year-end year-end performance? I mean, can they can that be strong enough to keep driving equities up? I, I think that um, well, for for me, so I mean, you know, Dar Darius is much more. Um, you know, well versed and and well researched in all this. I'm more of you know a, a shorter term coin tosser, um, and then managing to not lose money on the downside. But with that said, for me, I see it as potential like huge opportunities that can pop up day to day, intraday even to 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 take advantage of or to exploit those who have their jobs literally tied to. Uh, the PNL performance of you know of of their book. The great thing about the individual investors is that we don't have to worry about. You're not going to sell your stocks at the end of December just because the because it's the end of December. You're going to sell it when you need to sell it. You know, and you're going to calculate the profit or loss in between, but not based on some arbitrary calendar time period. And so you can really take advantage of that because there's going to be forced selling, and people are going to have to you know make market uh, actions and activity that. That that you don't that you're not subject to. So just look out for those sort of opportunities. Yeah, that I think that's fantastic advice, and there there is all all of that that goes behind it. And you know that always makes me worry, Darius, because you know I was speaking to Brent Donnelly on Friday, and he was really adamant of people breaking the mindset of just buying the dip reflexively. You know that they've been taught to do for so long. And if you see people chasing performance and and managing career risk, as uh, Weston so eloquently put it, you can kind of get sucked back into that and thinking that we've seen a turn in the market. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I will say is, is, you know, that the career risk management aspect of it all, if you think about the kind of the game that's being played on the buy side, it's not as bad or is it that that career, the level of career risk is not as sort of uh, high as one might think, given as, as, as poorly as markets have, have gone down. So I'm looking at um, the year-to-date performance of the HFRX equity hedge fund index, uh, just using uh, isolating the stock market, you know it's only down 4.7 percent year to date. This is data through Friday's close. Uh, Bloomberg's equity hedge index is only down 5.9 percent data through um, uh, Friday's close. And you know Friday, obviously, we closed down 25 percent on the spy year to date. So you know that's a 2,000 basis point outperformance for that asset class within that particular asset class. You know for for equity hedge fund managers within this particular asset class. So you actually might not necessarily see the kind of widespread redemptions one might expect in this kind of environment. Now, I'll say that to say this, 
we have not seen retail really sell in aggregate or in mass like you traditionally do and see in bear markets. You know, if you look at um, equity ownership, uh, equity ownership and mutual fund shares, or at least the ratio of mutual fund shares that are um, allocated to stocks, you combine those two metrics and you look at that as a share of overall uh, total uh, assets on the consumer balance sheet. And we're coming off an all-time high of 36% last June or last 2Q, and we've slowed to about, or we've declined to about 31%. You know, we can get down to levels as low as, you know, 24, 23 percent on the lows. If you look at the last couple of bear markets and this thing in the 70s, you know, was all the way down in the you know 15 to 20 percent range. So uh, there's a lot of selling ahead if, in fact, we do start to see some of these more left tail vents, you know, matriculate towards the center of the distribution. Yeah. And and we had a question from Mudashir Hossein um, asking, you know, for the regular for the regular Joe in the street, how do you save yourself? Um, from this current environment. But importantly, I think he's asking, what do you look for in a bottoming process? That's a great question for people who are watching this and trying to figure out what's real and what's a, you know, what's a false dawn? Like what, what's a rally that you could get kind of sucked into that you you want to be careful? What are are there things to look for, Darius? Yeah, 100% there are things to look for. So uh, we did a big study this past summer uh, sequencing all the different bear markets that we've had over the last uh, 100 years, uh, starting with the you know the, the first act of the Great Depression. Um, and of those 17 bear markets, you know there's there's a there's a, some pretty consistent sort of dynamics that tend to take place when you're sort of uh, trying you're at the lows of those those markets. Uh, the number one dynamic being uh, you typically are somewhere between one month and three months after. The Fed has pivoted after after is the most important word in this in this statement. Um, in fact, there's only been two bear markets of that 17 bear market sample that actually bottomed before the Fed pivoted. And the the, the longest lead time to that uh, was actually only two months. And so if you think the Fed is, is nowhere near pivoting, you have to expect that this market is not yet bottoming. Um, we also studied it through the lens of so that's the liquidity cycle. Um, in terms of the Fed pivot. Uh, we set it through the lens of the inflation cycle and the, and the growth cycle as well. And kind of the key takeaways there is that um, typically, particularly in inflationary bear markets, when you want to isolate that particular cohort and that sample, you know, the inflationary bear markets tend to bottom roughly three months after inflation has, has, has inflected off the highs. Um, and that tends to be right around the time you get that Fed pivot. And then lastly, uh, on average growth, um, you know, the markets tend to be out a little bit more than a quarter uh, to forecast in the bottom in the growth cycle. So, so to sum all that up, the key takeaway is as an investor, this is something I said going back to the early part of this year, and everyone who's been watching the show will remind, remember when I say this, it'll be triggering. You got to wait for the Federal Reserve ambulance sirens. You don't buy when there's blood in the street. You buy when there's a catalyst to clean it up. And 100 years of data, at least something that we've uh, we spent a lot of time on for 42 macro subscribers, are telling you that you, you tend not to want to be buying uh, much ahead of the, uh, the actual pivot, the inflection in the liquidity yeah. cycle. Yeah, the 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 all famous pivot. Um, that that has been and Fed officials out again today, trying to beat down any hope for that, saying we're committed. You know that 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 the mistake would be to turn too early. We are in this inflation fight to the end. But Weston, you know, we saw a, a stunning reversal, uh, from the British government today. In fact, um, one of the tweets that caught all of our eye was from the Chancellor of the Exchequer saying. We get it, and we have listened. You know, they 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 dropped their uh, one of the elements of their mini budget. We'll see what else changes after adamantly saying they were going to stick with it. Um, the UK situation has been so interesting, and we saw the pound react. What are you watching there? And and you know, does this seem like temporary relief or 
maybe are on are they on the road to stabilizing the situation? Oh god. Okay. So um so the UK so let me just so let me just first say so I just put out a, a video on Real Vision that covers all of this um, under this sort of larger framework that I've been talking about of central or of policy divergence. And then within that, there are kind of subcategories. This particular subcategory is central bank divergence or a policy divergence, as in central banks and their own governments at battle with one another. And I pointed this out, this theme out to watch out for going into Central Bank Week, which was FOMC, September FOMC Week, which was also Bank of Japan Week, Bank of England Week, along with many other um, central banks that were all hiking rates and all that. Uh, that was about two weeks ago. And going into that, I said, the Fed, yes, very important. However, keep your eyes on two specific, not just central banks, but regions. Japan, as in the Bank of Japan, uh, and uh and the UK and the Bank of England, and watch for these clashes between their respective governments and their central bank policies. And then the asset class that you want to keep in mind when you're watching this is the FX markets. And then what happened, you saw Japan intervention and a massive five yen drop in 20 minutes following a near breakthrough, these sort of, you know, uh, not all time highs on dollar yen, but post plaza quarter highs of 146. Um, you saw that happen. And then shortly after that, you saw the UK government essentially, you know, crash the, the, the pound down to 103, which is a record all time low, only to have the Bank of England come in and not only have to, you know, set us put aside their bond on their guilt unwinding program, but then start to actively buy um, at the long end uh, in order to stem any sort of financial instability that was really, you know, crippling and 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 causing a potential existential threat to the the, the pension system. Um, so yeah, so so there's there those are two separate stories, but they're within the same general framework of. This is like these are self-inflicted wounds that um, that are happening uh, at the hands of you know elected officials uh, that are at odds with their respective central central banks. Um, so, and what what I'll say is that of those two, Japan, what they did when they intervened, um, that was incredibly. Uh, significant for two reasons. One of them is obviously there is the the price action itself, and then the kind of cross correlation uh, relationships that had really just kind of broken apart. Um, Brian, if you actually go to uh, chart one, um, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's just an example, um, but this is like the classic ten-year, you know, U.S. Treasury to uh, JGB ten-year uh, yield spread versus the uh, versus dollar yen. They are typically very highly correlated. And then you could see like the jawboning of the BOJ rate check coming in um, that put a cap on dollar yen artificially when yield spreads were widening. And then you saw the intervention itself, which really blew out that, you know, that that uh, correlation. And so one of them is severely mispriced. Obviously, it's going to be the yen. Um, so that's still overhanging. That's kind of lingering out there. But that kind of like that dislocation also ripples across to, to many other areas. Uh, the second significant thing, however, the more significant thing was that what BOJ did or what uh, the Ministry of Finance did or the Japanese officials did by intervening unilaterally without the permission of the G5 counterparts, let alone the blessing of the United States you know, Treasury, 
Um, when the, when you do that as a G5, um, you know, a, a G5 nation and a major economy, in thir- and you intervene directly into the third most traded uh, currency globally, on you know, in, in volume, on daily volume, then what you're doing is you're essentially kind of letting a genie out of the bottle and like opening the floodgates for other sovereigns and other central banks to basically say like like conventional rules and norms forget them let's throw let's toss the book out do what you gotta do we're you know we, we are so you know we can't we're not in a position to complain if anyone else does and you're gonna see more interventions is what i was gonna say what i was saying at the time you know in each in their respective form then since then we saw that with the pboc we saw obviously with UK, we saw that uh, even the Bank of Korea started to buy back bonds. Um, now these are all you could say like these are all very separate, idiosyncratic, and all that. Uh, yes, and so is Japan's intervention of of both the JGB market and the um, and the yen, you know, simultaneously happening, which is economically unsustainable uh, and ge- geopolitically unsustainable. But that kind of symboling um, is, I think, really dangerous, and I think that we have yet to see. Um, what's what's going to come of any sort of um, you know other policy actions that this might have inspired from where when how it's going to come through you know um, like the UK that policy came out of like sort of nowhere I guess but then the Bank of England stepping in it's like will they or won't they that goes directly against what they're doing trying to do and and all that and. And uh, you just don't know where it's going to come from. And so that makes yeah. it incredibly difficult to, to sort of invest in. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I, I think that's a I think that's an excellent point and and it raises the risk, doesn't it? Um Darius, by the way, we've got some fantastic questions coming in, so I'm going to get to them in just a minute, but keep them coming. They're really, really good. Um, I just want to raise this other really big issue that came up today because I think it's important that everyone understands. so so th- to me, this sounds like an incredibly risky landscape that Weston's describing. Um, and then Darius, we had the news on Credit Suisse, right? Big, big Swiss bank. Um, I mean, you know, it's Switzerland supposed to be like, you know, safe, boring, reliable. Um, the stock is plunging and and down another 12 percent today. And credit default swaps, the insurance that investors take out to make t- against a default from a country or a, a, a bank or a cor- corporation, they were blowing out. And that's scary stuff. That's like gee, uh, great financial crisis stuff happening. What do you make of that? Like, are are you worried or is there something else going on that maybe, you know, we should feel at least a little bit better at than those headlines would suggest? Uh, so worried is probably the wrong interpretation because um, I, I have this general bias that, you know, we, we, we've not we like we're involved in it at 42 Macro, but we as a collective investor, um, you know, kind of the investor consensus rather have been searching for the next Lehman since 2008. Right, like it, everything's been the next Lehman since 2008, and so whenever you see 
you know, when it when it's and it's back to that same sector from a credit default swap signaling perspective, people's ears are going to perk up and, and you're going to get, you know, for lack of a better word, FinTwit's going to get all aroused, you know, and get very excited about that. Um, yeah, they did because they were comparing yeah. it to some people to Bear Stearns today. So yeah, we, exactly. we know that that and, happens. Yeah. Yeah. And look, and look, this, this, it, it, uh, let's put aside the the likely, the probable path, and then how we should think about this investors. I'll, I'll put the probable path um, uh, in, the, in the second half of this discussion. How we should think about this as investors is one, understanding, trying to contextualize the risks. Is this a material risk? And is the, the, the level, is the risk changing at a material rate? Well, you can argue the risk is, in fact, changing at a material rate, but it's not yet a material risk. If you look at five-year CDS and Credit Suisse, they're only pricing in about a 2.6% chance of default over the next year, right? Like that's saying they have a 97% chance of not defaulting. So um, that's not that's really hardly anything to write home about. And then we look at um, you know Credit Suisse tier one capital ratios. You know, I think it's somewhere north of 13%. That's 300 basis points higher than the Swiss government's. Um, regulatory uh, uh, framework, and then it's another couple hundred basis points higher uh, than the Basel III framework. So this is a bank that is well capitalized. Um, so in terms of the actual acute risk, it's probably very low. Now, the issue is that acute risk could continue to rise and accelerate, particularly if we continue to get a deepening downturn in the global growth cycle and the liquidity cycle downturn does not inflect in a, in a in a short enough time frame to really start to offset that from a risk-taking perspective. And there is risk that that, that outcome does happen. And so um, could you see something that looks like defaults on Credit Suisse balance sheet or, or you know, huge write-downs or big, big um, provisions for, 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 you know, for bad loans? That's something that's probably in Credit Suisse future. The market's already telling you that. Will that become a systemic issue? I would have to go no, just given the fact that a the U.S. government has these standing swap lines with all its up, you know, friendly central banks, so obtaining dollars to you know to finance the the dollar portfolios, dollar loan portfolios of this of this bank is not going to be that big of an issue. It just might come at a, at a significant cost to investors in European financials and Credit Suisse in particular. It's a great, great clarification, Darius. It makes me think of there was uh, someone that I that I interviewed recently um, on inflation. But it was the theme that the the challenge every day is to trade for the next 10 years, not the past 10 years. And your point about really being haunted by the great financial crisis and looking for Lehman around every corner, I think, is a really, really valid one. Um, Weston, I, I want to get pull some of these questions in. And as we know, Weston has been emphasizing the importance of foreign exchange, of currencies, and how they are really kind of the asset class that's giving us the clearest form of signaling. So Charles must have be listening to you, Weston, because he's asking Charles on YouTube, could foreign markets be buying U.S. bonds to try to stabilize their currencies? I think he's right looking at the connection, but I think it's the other way around, isn't it? Um, I think that Andreas was talking about the sort of cycle of doom, of FX doom, um, wouldn't they be selling bonds to raise dollars? Can you can you talk to that? Yeah, sure. Um, th this is a, a, a great opportunity to just say something that, that I, I it always kind of slips my mind, but um, it's a very basic thing that I want to say. Uh, a lot there's a lot of people to like, and I'm and I encourage the the discussion too. But a lot of people are talking about um, something like a intervention and uh, how how much more they can do. How much um, FX reserves does Japan have? Which is a lot. Um, and their treasury holdings, which is obviously Japan being the largest creditor to the United States, they have a massive amount of treasury holdings. But at what point are they going to have to tap into that, start selling U.S. treasuries in order to, if they're going to continue to intervene into uh, FX markets and so on and so forth? All perfectly legitimate questions. The one thing I just want to say just before all that is like, 
let let's just um define japan like uh the like people think that it's kind of just one sort of monolith country and this is not just just relating to japan but like when they say like uh the the saudis are doing this or the whatever it is right unless you're talking about like a government um the central bank or government pension fund or like some sort of government entity um japan when you say like japan that like is selling treasuries a, lot, a huge amount of treasury holdings from japan are from the japan, japanese private sector the insurance companies um asset managers um and and not necessarily the government itself so um japan like uh some insurance company in japan is not necessarily going to have to sell their u.s treasury holdings because they're not they're a private sector entity they're not going to be propping up usd jpy right so uh, we have to be very careful to not try to lump it all to uh together uh but to answer your question yes uh maggie it would be a matter of uh you know a question of like selling you know is japan gonna have to start selling u.s treasuries in order to uh to do this and to that to that particular point i would say that if it gets to a point where japan is starting to and look look the that yen intervention that they you know blasted uh usd jpy down five yen well we're right back to where like it was pre that so good job japan um but they have maybe what like four more rounds of, of doing that and then and then that's it but at some point though um if they if it gets to the point where they have to start selling u.s treasuries and the u.s like you know i mean i mean darius obviously knows about how much like uh issuance is um gonna come relative to how much demand is going to be there or not be there to soak it up um you might actually get some rumblings of a potential plaza accord type two type of thing like the very early stages that's i think what would make the treasury secretary um or the u.s treasury department uh actually do a sort of official you know like multilateral intervention sort of thing because borrowing costs in the united states government are just shooting up way too high way too fast um kind of like in the uk guild market and they just need foreign buyers aka the japanese buyer to step back in and stop being sellers and 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 being buyers uh instead and that's what would maybe potentially trigger um or incentivize them uh the the uk or, or the us to to uh to, to do that um mm -hmm. so when it comes down to that sort of level but until then uh you're looking at you know uh almost 10 handle on cpi in the us and everywhere else in the dm and a three handle for japan and so you're not going to get any sympathy for like selling US dollars and euros and then all that because Japan has a pathetically weak currency. Um, yeah. One thing I would add to that real quickly for the next question is that Brian Deese, the White House uh, Economic Council Director, if I'm, I'm sorry if I'm bridging your title, Brian, um, he said uh -huh. he actually confirmed on Monday or on Friday that there was, would be no uh, Plaza Accord 2.0. Sorry, not Friday, last Wednesday, there'd be no Plaza Accord 2.0. Now, again, we might get there over time. But you have to think about the sort of conditions that were in place for the Plaza Accord and sort of compare them to today, and we're just not at comparable levels. The Dixie got up to 165. I think we're at somewhere around 113 today. Um, you know, if you look at it in terms of realized volatility in the currency market, 30-day um, uh, realized volatility in the, in the Dixie was 17% um, when they decided to do the Plaza Accord versus only 9% now. And then lastly, you had the dollar going, I'm not kidding you, This look at the chart. It went straight up for five years, straight up with like no pullbacks for five years. Now we're a year, a little bit over a year into this dollar bull market. Um, and it's very clearly quite painful for, for most of the global economy, but I, it's not certainly from a levels perspective and nor from a volatility perspective, have we reached the kind of levels that might cause 
uh, and, and, and you know the, the sort of um, you know the U.S. to get on board with weakening, you know, dramatic weakening of the U.S. currency, particularly here at you know let's call it five percent core PCE inflation, eight percent headline inflation. That they're just not going to be able to get away with that. That's not that's a yeah, tough sale I, to the U.S. public. And I think yeah. um, you know Jim Bianco and some others have been pointing out wh whether you're talking about a Fed pivot or a Plaza Accord. If we're getting to that point, we got a lot of things to worry about. <laughs> if, the, if the situation is that bad that it's pushing us into hundred percent. You know, it, these kind of things. So watch what you're for. So, um, Darius, you got to watch. Yeah, uh, oh, yeah. Oh, sorry, I was, I was got. You gotta. It's you, you gotta. You gotta watch. You know, Treasury realized volatility more so than currency realized volatility for currency intervention. All right, we're that 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 might be um a a, a breakdown. Um, an expert in the idiot uh piece we're gonna have to do. Um, <laughs> uh, Weston. Um, I want to try to rifle through a few of these. Um, Darius, Curious Sand asking, why is the 10-year yield dropping this much today? Some say Fed is buying, and in parentheses, it all. <laughs> uh, these Twitter conspiracy theories <laughs> crack me up, man. <laughs> People need to get back to the base. Get off Twitter. You guys spend way too much time on Twitter. I, I, I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in a... Life is too short. There's a lot more wonderful to go out and enjoy the fall weather. You know. <laughs> anyway, no, the Fed is not buying treasuries. The Fed, is, the Fed is actively shrinking its balance sheet for treasuries. Now, there's a lot of funky accounting gimmickry, particularly on the mortgage side of their, their book, uh, that kind of makes quantitative tightening not as linear as we all think it is when they give us these, these targets. Um, but just in terms of that, that so get that get that out of here. The Fed is not buying treasuries. The one thing I will say, um, you know, kind of as it relates to why treasuries are down today, to answer the question, it's we're seeing a sympathetic move in the European sovereign debt market translate into the U.S. market. You know, so this about face that we're seeing, or many about face, if you will, uh, by the U.K. Uh, government to remove some of the, um, you know, kind of some of the, the tail end of their their kind of fiscal profligacy out of that program. Um, that's that's out in support for the guild market, and as a function of that, you're seeing a rally and and, and rates global. So you, you got to keep this global. So sovereign debt is a global asset class; it trades globally. Yeah. And all of these markets are super in interconnected right now, which is why you'll hear a lot of the people who come on our program say this is a really macro moment, right? Macroeconomics, big picture. There's a lot of cross ties. These questions are just great, guys. Um, Weston, uh, try this. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this question, then you can circle yeah. back if you have another point. Um, Niles asking, H, is a possible pivot hastened by the historical rapidity of the rate hikes. I mean, we see these mo markets moving in ways that we really, I mean, they're, they're really, really rapid moves, whether we're looking at currencies or rates. Do you think that sort of forces the hands of policymakers in any way? Yeah, but not in the way that I think that it's being, the question is being implied. Um, not in the sense that from an economic perspective, uh, things will break, but rather if you, if the pace of liquidity removal is so rapid and unprecedented and and the you know uh, market participants have not seen this before, which none of us have, um, and liquidity is getting sapped um, from from the markets, then you might get a situation where the Fed might do a non QE QE sort of thing. Um, and so in that sense, yeah but not necessarily from a sort of more fundamental bond yields um, versus inflation sort of um, setup. Mm. And that's when, when people talk about things breaking, that's what they're talking about when the moves are so extreme that you see, you know, I agree. Yeah, and I would say, I would add something to this discussion because to me, I think this is arguably the core discussion around investors' expectations for terminal Fed funds rate, 
for the you know ultimate low in the S&P 500, Bitcoin, ultimate high in, in treasury bond yields, et cetera. And the reality is that discussion centers around what is the neutral level of interest rate? Has that neutral level of interest gone up because the economy is more resilient, has a lot more cash and liquidity on consumer and corporate balance sheets to allow you know, for the economy to the economic engine to continue humming despite the rapidity of these interest rate hikes and the rapidity of the, the, the balance sheet expansion or uh, contraction that we're currently going through? Or has nothing really changed? It's still kind of a 2019 world. And we're just going through this sort of, you know, kind of, you know, very rapid, you know, boom bust cycle as it relates to coming out of COVID with a bunch of fiscal stimulus. I think if you're in the latter camp, you are expecting Credit Suisse to morph into Lehman. You're expecting a global a global financial crisis or certainly something like a deep global recession next year. And if you're in the former camp, which is, you know, this is a different economy. There's a lot more liquidity in the economy. And this is an economy that can probably handle, um, you know, this level of interest and this speed of balance sheet reduction. Then you're probably in the camp that you know rates are going to be a little bit higher. Uh, stock prices might actually become a little bit lower in that context because it ultimately means the Fed's going to be proven right on its desire to be tighter for longer. So I think investors need to figure out which camp they're in before they make another trade before the end of the year. Yeah, that and and they are they are well defined and there are, there are real divergence out there on opinions and people who've been in the markets forever are on opposite sides of that argument and yeah. we've had, we have them both on our air so you can sort of dig in and listen and make your decision. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. We're going to do the takeaways in a minute. One more quick question. Either of you can take it um, from Robert on YouTube. Why were gold and especially silver up so strongly today? And I would just like to give a shout out to Dale. If any of you were listening last Thursday, he specifically was talking about silver. So those those experienced commodity traders, man, they see this stuff coming. But any thoughts from either of you about gold and silver today? Not off the top of my head, no. Um. Like, so just generally speaking, I would say that I wouldn't read too much into one day's move ever, really, but especially um, the final quarter of a horrendous cross asset, you know, multi asset um, year to date. Um, This is a time for repositioning, reallocation, career risk management. So. Um, you know, like more so than fundamentals, that's what would be driving, you know, it's, it's human behaviors and positioning um, into the last quarter, into the, you know, you're down, uh, you know, your, your, your team Yale, you're down 45 nothing uh, going into the fourth, you know, Darius Dale has like the locker room talk and then they come back out and, you know, they, they, they position their assets uh, accordingly. And I think that that's what you're probably going to see, not just today, but over the last next, you know, um, few days or so. Um, and I wouldn't read too too deeply into it and attach some sort of like kind of fun, fundamental sort of uh, reasoning behind it. Um, but uh, Maggie, can I, can I just bring up like that one, one quick yes, thing? Yes, please go. Child, please. 40 yeah. down, 45 to nothing. <laughs> By the way, we're, defi- we're definitely going to have a conversation about where Weston would, would play. What position should we cast Weston on, on that team? That we got we got to get that after hours. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm uh, 
I'm a, I'm the, I'm the bench kicker. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so Brian, can you pull up the last chart, uh, the chart, uh, the, with, uh, pound features and, and, and yen features. Um, this is, so this is something I brought up in the video today, but I just want to bring up cause this is sort of a, um, uh, a, a view that I have not heard anybody discuss. And, uh, so I want to bring it up. Um, so I believe that what the Ministry of Finance also did when they intervened and they basically blew up yen shorts in dramatic fashion, um, that has a direct tie in my belief to the the crushing of the British pound to all-time lows. Those are mm -hmm. two very interconnected things. So essentially what you have is the Ministry of Finance in Japan, so like foreigners are selling yen futures and all that and they could give a shit less. But what they care about, because because when you have a short position, that means that at some point that's an open position, you have to cover that, you have to buy cover that. And so they don't really care. What they care about is domestic Jap Japanese who are naturally long in to to disrepatriate, if you will, to like capital flight out selling in. That's what they're afraid of. And Japanese need to get long dollar exposure. So by uh, intervening and, you know, doing this unilateral, um, you know, uh, like uh, like intervention into um, squeezing the yen and basically getting yen shorts or dollar longs crushed. What that did was it made the yen um, impossible to short or to sell against the the dollar. So so Japanese investors who need their to maintain their dollar exposure now are moving to something else. And so they look around the world, they see the UK as a as a great candidate. Uh, for the sort of you know sell leg of the long to get their long USD exposure, and so they switch from uh, being long USD JPY to being long GBP uh, uh, G U GBP USD. Uh, U I'm sorry, USD GBP essentially, um, and to, in in order for them to maintain their their long um, their their long exposure, and that's why you see like because you know at when the the UK uh, currency fell to 103. Um, that happened during illiquid Asia hours, right? There's no such thing as illiquid Asia hours with a major, F, you know, G10 or G5 currency, like the, the UK sterling at 10 a.m. Uh, in the middle of, uh, you know, the UK trading session, um, which is a very active session. So what that was, was basically domestics switching over and basically shorting the pound instead of the yens, like, and doing that switch. And the problem with that is that once they did that, in comes the Bank of England, and then short squeezed that that position as well. So a lot of um, there's a lot. I think that there's a lot more repercussions come from that, but um, of of getting burned on those two positions because these are not like speculative positions. These are long only who are trying to just hedge their um, exposure, keep their long dollar exposure, and they're getting killed by two of these central banks um, and governments that are at war with one another. So that's just something that I wanted to put out there. The rest of it's Amazing. in the video. Well, yeah, yeah, no, it's amazing. And and the show that uh, Weston's referring to is um, what we've been missing. And this is exactly the kind of things that we all want to you to have on your radar, even if you don't totally understand them, you know, ping Weston, he'll go through and explain it a little deeper. Um, if you need to leave a comment, because it's it's more complicated now. And I think honestly, that's going to be my takeaway today, listening to both of you is that, you know, we come into this and we're like, oh, first day of the quarter, there's a huge rally in equities. And, you know, maybe this is the beginning of a, at least a little bit better, a quarter, we can all end the year feeling a little bit better. And what I'm hearing from both of you is not so fast. Yes, you may have a tradable rally here somewhere if you're very tactical, 
um, to Darius's point, because maybe the U.S. economy is a little bit more resilient. But there are a lot of really complicated kind of contradictory things going on. As Weston points out, there's not coordination. Everyone's kind of gunning for themselves right now, in some cases against each other, in some cases the government versus its own central bank. So it's super complicated. And there are a lot of unintended consequences when something like that happens. So it sounds like it's going to be pretty dicey right through the end of this year. Um, Weston, I'll ask you for a final thought. But Darius, I'd love to to get your thought on what do people do in this environment? I know we've been saying cash. Is that still the safest thing to do, um, given what we just talked about? Yeah, no, we said cash is king in January, and it's even more kinger, if that's a word. I mean, you know, with the Fed taking rates to more than likely four and a half, four and a quarter, four and a half, who knows where they go? Maybe it's five and a half. We'll see in terms of how resilient this economy and core inflation are going to be over the next quarter or two. You know, cash is increasingly king. There's, you know, for the really first time since the beginning of my career, there's been a yield, you know, on, yeah. on cash, like a legitimate yield, a competitive yield relative to equity and credit uh, market security. So that's certainly uh, something I would call out. And and just be careful, if, you know, if you're as an investor, you know, we're making the call that there is a likely path for a tradable rally to Maggie's point. But if you're not tactical, if you're not sort of plugged into what drives these tactical moves in terms of positioning, in terms of sentiment, in terms of the actual catalyst and how those catalysts might unfold in terms of reorganizing investors on perceptions of perceptions of, you know, things like growth, inflation and policy, do not participate as a tactical investor. I mean, just, just be a dollar cost average long-term investor. What I'm really trying to say is if you don't have a process to be tactical and take advantage of some of these market opportunities, you just do well to just go sit in cash. I would, I would highly recommend that. Yeah, and, and really understand how to protect yourself as well. Yeah. Weston, final thoughts from you. Is it going to be about FX, uh, Weston? <laughs> no, it's just it's just about just just policy risk. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, if I told you that the UK was about to be treated by the IMF like some EM EM getting lectured at about fiscal policy, you would have thought it was crazy. Um, to one week ago, if I told you that everything is going to return back return back to normal, you would have thought I was crazy. And here we are. Um, so. The, this is a, this is the the United Kingdom is a major you know um, uh, you know country market um, and uh, influence and so these things can happen and so again my thesis being that there is going to be an increasing conflict among central banks within central banks versus their own governments and the constituents uh, this very much includes the United States especially in election year um, and all that so this, these are themes that you need to be aware of and now that. Uh, it seems to be that people are just the, the you know G the the G10 are just have thrown the rule book out. It's it's a free fall, and so expect anything um, that could could happen. Um, and I don't know how one would hedge against that, but just don't be surprised when crazy shit happens because it it will. Um, and uh, like just be on be very like watch kind of on the lookout for that and have that sort of uh, mentality in the background as you uh, proceed with you know 42 macro type of like real due diligence into markets and all that too. Fantastic advice from both of you. And we're going to try to do our best to kind of tease out a lot of these different angles that you might not hear anywhere else, because at the end of the day, information is power. So you want to be across as much of this as you can. So we appreciate both of you. Wes, we went a little long, but we needed to, and we have you two in the seat. 
Weston and uh, Darius, thank you so much. And thanks to all of you. The questions were great. Keep them coming. And you can throw them in the comments on our website too, because we go through them. So if we didn't get them in today, all of yours, or you've thought about it and you have some more, go ahead and hit us up there or hit us on Twitter. You have all of our handles and go ahead and hit that like button as well. Um, that's it for us. I'm going to be back tomorrow with Tony Greer. So any commodity questions, come arms with them. We'll see you then. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. Go yell. <laughs> oh, the go fighting Darius's man. Sri Lanka Prime Minister's house set alight. First is authoritarianism. The second is corruption. The FOMC is strongly resolved to bring inflation down to two percent. Home builders are abandoning homes. Massive protests going on here. We're going to see a material impact here on growth and indeed on earnings, which might pull a change is happening, and you can fear it. You're not going to stop it. There are really only two countries in Europe that have managed to maintain a replacement level birth rate, France and Sweden. This is the biggest bubble in the history of the world, and you have no clue. It's all herd mentality. It's the same as the property market. What happens over the next few months could define what happens over the next few years. So we want to make sure that you understand why. You've probably realized that we really have been listening to you. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.